This video is taken in an army barracks in Ukraine. That's the Ukrainian national anthem on violin. The shuffling is the player's fellow soldiers standing in reverent silence. It's one of many musical scenes caught on video in now war-torn Ukraine. Instrumentalists playing over air raid sirens, an orchestra defiantly together in the street, a woman dusting off her piano, playing it one last time to say goodbye, a child singing her favorite song from Frozen, hiding in a shelter. Yes, the Ukrainian people have taken up arms in their own defense, but for themselves, they're making music. I'm Colleen Phelps, and this is Classically Speaking. You just need to have something to keep the hope up and, and kind of look forward to the days when you can kind of uh, make jokes and, and, and be safe and happy. That's pianist Anna Schellest. She and her husband, fellow pianist Dmitry Schellest, live in New York now, but they're from the same city in Ukraine, and their family is still there, not leaving. And it's things like music that Anna has said are keeping people going. And I think it's also amazing to see how, how their spirit is so uh, unbreakable in a way, because obviously the whole world sees that Ukraine, Ukraine and Ukrainians are living in horror. Yet when we call them, they're trying to not live in the moment, but to try to live in the future past this moment and to start look forward to rebuilding the country and to uh, resuming the normal life. They're trying to maybe do their best to keep the spirits up to separate them from the horrors that they're living in. So which is it's, it's, it's very difficult for them and for us. And what we keep on admiring is that when we call it, you know, from an ocean away is how they're in the midst of all of it are trying to carry on with their lives and to resume as much normalcy as humanely possible. and Dmitry Shellist as a piano duo have now re-released their 2018 album of Ukrainian music called Ukrainian Rhapsody. Because while the physical fronts of this war are crucial moments that will be recorded for history, the culture front is also incredibly important. Part of the kind of this very aggressive narrative from Russia is that Ukraine doesn't exist as a, as a country, it doesn't exist as a people, it, it's artificial. And this is something that millions of people in Russia believe. And this propaganda, it's even kind of being brought into the West. And uh, I've heard some people, even in American media, entertain these ideas, which are very dangerous. And, and we see what they can lead to. I think what we can do as musicians is show the world that Ukraine is a country with a unique culture, with very, very old culture. And it has been aspiring to be part of the Western world for centuries. And this is something that I think not many people realize outside of the Ukraine. In Ukraine, it's, it's very, very important and people know about it. 
people want to become part of the Western culture, a part of, the, of Europe. And actually our president, President Zelensky, he talked uh, about it uh, very passionately, how Ukraine wants to be a part of the European family. Uh, please accept us. And, you know, they're doing everything. They, they are paying for this right with their blood uh, right now to be part of Europe. And I think what culture uh, can show, even like pieces of music that has been written over 100, 200 years ago, is that Ukrainians, they were aspiring to be independent, to have very unique, their own identity, that just want to live peacefully. Uh, they want to speak their language. They want to raise their children in peace and be proud of their, their land, their culture, their language and just, you know, being people who can live in peace. Ukrainian composers, to me, are those who really made their Ukrainian identity the center of their art. Like, for example, composers like Prokofiev, who was born in Ukraine. I think he was a Russian composer. He was really a Soviet composer. And the reason for it is that uh, Russia, as a huge empire, it took resources uh, from countries and from lands that it occupied. And often for artists, for people who wanted to you know, get somewhere, the only way to promote uh, their art was to actually enter and you know go to Russia, go to Moscow, to St. Petersburg, because those were centers in which it was possible for them to have more opportunities. Let's take Mykola Lizenka as an example. Lizenka wrote an opera in the 1800s called Taras Bulba, a story set in Kyiv, composed in Ukrainian. It hadn't been performed, so fellow composer Peter Ilyich Tchaikovsky tried to arrange for it to be debuted in St. Petersburg. But to be performed there, it would have had to be translated into Russian. Lizenko refused because it was a Ukrainian story. It was never performed in his lifetime. The Chalest duo here is playing their arrangement of the overture. He was prosecuted for the fact that he uh, wanted to separate his uh, music from kind of the, the Russian worldview. When you read about composers and you kind of see what stand they took in this uh, constant conversation, you know, sometimes maybe they weren't even thinking so clearly uh, in, in this terms of this identity. I'm not uh, maybe judging uh, some composers who chose to, to go to Russia. And, you know, it, it's not about that. But the, but the Ukrainian composers, they really uh, had a very firm stance and they had to sacrifice a lot to make sure that they published, it's the same thing with writers too, that they published in Ukrainian, they wrote in Ukrainian, they made Ukrainian kind of folk music, they put it at the heart of their musical language.
I think there a lot to learn about um, kind of what really makes uh, Ukrainian culture and identity. And I hope when we have peaceful time, you know, there'll be many, many more uh, hours and, and years that we can devote to really examining it, it, it's a very important uh, issue. On Ukrainian Rhapsody, Anna also plays a solo work by Lizenka, a set of folk songs in the style of a Baroque suite, mixing old and, well, old to make something new. That piece, when I actually came across this piece, it was a few years back, and I thought, wow, this is so amazing that he wrote it, you know, a hundred years ago. But it's the same conversation. He he was presenting Ukrainian music in the light of European tradition. So he took Ukrainian songs and he kind of used this Baroque suite type to structure to make it into this beautiful art. So that, that was some, something very striking to me about this particular work, how Ukrainian it sounded to me. At the same time, it kind of has this very Western uh, streak as well. Anna and Dimitri also included on Ukrainian Rhapsody their album a more contemporary voice, Miroslav Skordik, a decorated, awarded Ukrainian composer who died in 2020. What was his or is his stature sort of like among composers in Ukraine? Oh, still, number one. Still at this point, I think maybe when he was alive, he was like the most famous living composer, was commissioned to write music for a Ukrainian movie in the early 80s, uh, The Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors. And he wrote a tune called The Melody. And since then it was absolutely number one, his most recognized composition. And I think many people who didn't even know uh, his art so much would most likely hear that melody and uh, it's performed every which way on piano and violin voice choir you name it because it's you know it's it's like a vocalist uh, format it doesn't have lyrics in it The Celestes were able to meet Miroslav Skorik only by chance because both were in New York at the same time for performances. I think he was quite pleased that, uh, you know, that, that he chose to record his work and he was very supportive. And that was unfortunately the only time we got to meet him in person, but we still cherish that memory. The piece Dimitri is referring to, Melody from High Pass, was recently recorded by violinist Daniel Hope, along with Ukrainian pianist Alexei Botvinov, which you're hearing right now. It was also heard in the U.S. Congress, accompanying a film shown by Volodymyr Zelensky, reflecting the damage to Ukraine. So uh, romantic and so uh, powerful as far as expressing the the nationalistic identity that he wanted to convey in that movie.
troubled times, art and music become more poignant, but so does the act of making music. We'll talk about how after the break. This is the Chalest duo, Anna and Dimitri, playing Morgan by Richard Strauss on their YouTube channel. The video is a bird's eye view of just their hands on the keyboard. And it's not a technically complex piece. There's not runs or big chords. It's just played with a lot of expression. I can't see their faces, just the hands. And I don't know if this is because for the last two years, music making has been so deprived of physical proximity because of COVID, but the nearness of their hands, the slow speed that they move, the moments when they just barely brush their fingers against each other, this video feels incredibly intimate. But it can't be that easy to just Play the piano with your spouse, can it? Dmitry and I, we met when we were children in Kharkiv. Uh, we were in the same musical school together. Then we uh, kind of reconnected again in the United States. So we knew each other for a very long time, but we started playing together actually after we got married. And a few people asked us, do you guys play together? And we thought, well, why not? We can try and see what happens. And it just became a really wonderful experience to make music together. And there's so much great music for piano duos. So it's just something that happened later in life. Maybe on some level, I regret that we did not start doing this earlier, but it so happens that when you're in college, you have a certain curriculum, musically speaking. If you go to a music school to be a concert pianist, that's what you do. You play piano solos. Anything else is extra, despite the fact that even some of history's best pianists, like Johannes Brahms and Clara Schumann, they play duets. Plus, it's fun. With four hands and an entire keyboard, you can play full orchestral pieces, like Franz Liszt's Le Preludes, like Dimitri and Anna do here, in their own arrangement. that perhaps in retrospect it would be much beneficial if we looked at that before we graduated college. Are there particular challenges to playing along with your spouse? Actually, I don't think there are. 
I think in a way it's easier because, you know, the rehearsal process, it can be kind of a challenge from a perspective of how to communicate your wishes. So if you play with a person that you might not know so well, it might take time for you to tell them diplomatically that, well, you know, I think let's try this. You know, you, you spend a lot of time explaining. But when you know each other so well, I think we can be very efficient in kind of telling each other, okay, I don't like this, let's try this. It's very easy to be kind of honest, open, and I find it actually really fun. I don't think we ever had strong arguments or, or fights over whoever, <laughs> you know, whose idea is better. It, it's, it's been always a kind of very open process for us. I actually think there's also a logistical side to it that will flip this question backwards because when you're in a regular setting, a chamber music setting, let's say a piano trio or a piano duet, generally speaking, in most of those ensembles, most of the time is spent to learn each part. And then, you know, if you really have a deadline in a few days, if you really know, if everyone really knows their parts, you could put together a program because you know what everyone's doing. But when it comes to a piano forehand ensemble, which is what we are focusing on, the unique part there is two people share one instrument uh, or one keyboard, and that creates all sorts of legit issues. So the process of preparing a program is sort of backwards you know, or, or disproportional in the amount of rehearsing because you could spend all the time you want learning your bottom part or your top part, but most progress will happen when you're together because all of a sudden you start realizing that there is not as much space as you thought there would be and you have to figure out the whole elbow bumping situation and what where each hand goes in the middle because there is a lot of conflicts, just logistically speaking. So where I'm getting with this whole thing is just like in couples figure skating or, or dancing, most of them are either brothers or sisters or husband and wives because they just get to spend so much time together. That's probably one of the more unique elements of playing one piano for hands. fellow classical artists who sort of look around and think, what, what, what am I doing right now with the world looking like this? People in Ukraine, uh, politicians, public figures, encourage to the greatest degree possible to do what it is people do best. They're saying, you know, look, you don't have to go fight because there are soldiers for that. There are people who want to do that, who can do that, who are good at that. You are good at certain things. Go open your bakery, go give someone a haircut, go cook a, a soup and, you know, give that to us. So play your music, do the job that you do well because everything you do well helps Ukraine. So I think that after a while, however long it took for individual people, when you kind of come back to your senses from this, uh, you know, shock, then I think it starts making sense that it is actually 
particularly uplifting for Ukrainians to see that, you know, when a metropolitan opera does the national anthem so beautifully, it can't not have its effect on the rest of the world, particularly for Ukraine. When the war started, I kind of felt completely useless. Like, my family is in danger, what can I do? Uh, you know, I, 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 I can't go fight, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm too, you know, scared to do this. But it, it felt like playing piano, it, it just, it, it's no help to anyone. Like, why would anyone care about this? But then I noticed that how much it meant uh, for people uh, when, for example, Metropolitan Opera, uh, they performed uh, Ukrainian anthem. You know, it meant so much to me and I know to many Ukrainians. And just seeing now when people play Ukrainian music, they acknowledge Ukrainian culture. I see that it uh, makes a difference. So I think it kind of made me realize that we can play a part in um, making sure that a Ukrainian identity is uh, reaffirmed every day. Just like that, Anna and Dmitry Shalest have already answered the call Volodymyr Zelensky sent to all musicians during the Grammy Awards telecast. On our land, we are fighting Russia, which brings horrible silence with its bombs, the dead silence. Feel the silence with your music, till it today to tell our story. Speaking is a production of Nashville Public Radio. The show is edited by Anita Bug and mastered by Carl Peterson. This interview was recorded as part of WUOL Classical Louisville's Behind the Playlist series. I'm Colleen Phelps. A complete playlist of the music in this episode can be found in the show notes at nashvilleclassicalradio.org. Thanks for using your backstage pass to classical music. Classically Speaking. Classically Speaking.